Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome back to another episode of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. As always, I'm your host, Eric Koslick. Today we've got an excellent show that highlights a couple of quote-unquote misfit spirits as I interviewed distiller Peter Alf of Mount Defiance Cidery and Distillery in Middleburg, Virginia. And one of this week's misfit spirits happens to be a personal favorite of mine, absinthe. So before we get started here, I want to give you the chance to, of course, make yourself a drink. That's right, this week's Featured Cocktail is another classic that's gotten a few mentions so far from podcast guests like Andrew Whitehead of Liquorary and Braden Bumpers of McClintock Distilling, just to name a few. So if you haven't guessed it already, it is the Sazerac, a simple New Orleans spin on the classic old-fashioned that features absinthe and Creole-style aromatic bitters. It's a bit more fragrant than a typical old-fashioned, and it's got a mysteriously perfumed character, courtesy of the absinthe and its customary lemon peel garnish. So how do you make one? Well, you generally start with about a quarter to a half an ounce of absinthe, and you roll that around inside your rocks glass, sans ice, to coat the entire inside of the glass. And then you either discard it or discreetly shoot the extra so as not to waste absinthe. That second one is me. The rest is just like an old-fashioned. You take a sugar cube and you soak that in bitters and a tiny splash of water at the bottom of your mixing pint. Traditionally, Peychaud's bitters is the brand used here, but I use, of course, Embitterment Aromatic Bitters because we actually blended this product as a nod to the Creole style, so they're perfect in a Sazerac. Then you muddle that sugar cube and you add your two ounces of whiskey and ice and you give it a good healthy stir, just like your old-fashioned. As Carly Steiner mentioned last episode, you want to dilute this somewhere around 20 to 25% because as you put it over another rock, that's going to melt as the cocktail sits. And so you stir it up and then you strain it into your absinthe rinsed rocks glass with that single large rock and you garnish it finally with an expressed lemon twist. Here's my personal flair because... I don't like how much work it takes to absinthe rinse a glass. I take my little cocktail atomizer. Essentially, it's a perfume sprayer. I actually mentioned this a while back when I was talking about the Corpse Reviver cocktail. And I have that little atomizer preloaded with absinthe, actually from Mount Defiance, for just such occasions. And I hit the surface of the drink with several healthy spritzes of the absinthe right before I garnish with my lemon peel. That way, the aromatic components really have a chance to enchant you when you take your first few sips. We recently had a photo shoot that allowed us to capture exactly what this atomized absinthe looks like in a Sazerac, so definitely head over to the show notes page and check it out there. It's a really gorgeous shot, uh, courtesy of Rima Desai Photography here in Washington, D.C. She does excellent work with food and drinks. So I thank you for that ramble, and now we'll jump into a couple of quick announcements. First, this Saturday, October 7, 2017, if you're able to make it to the Taste of DC event down at RFK Stadium here in Washington, D.C., you can catch a live mixology demo by yours truly from 1230 to 1 p.m. on the main stage. 
I'll be giving the celebrity chefs a break for about half an hour to demo a couple of different gin cocktails alongside one of the excellent brand ambassadors for Hendrix Gin, with whom I must say for legal reasons, Modern Barkhart is not affiliated. So come on down, check out the demo, then hit me up either before or afterwards at our booth where we'll be selling Embitterment Bitters and our new line of cocktail mixers, Sly Syrups. That's a really good chance for you to taste our products before you commit to them. If you don't have tickets for the Taste of DC, you can alternatively check out the opening of the new Mount Defiance Cider Barn out in Middleburg, Virginia, where there will be, according to Peter, food trucks and live music, in addition to really great cider and spirits. That's also happening on Saturday, October 7th, 2017. Of course, that announcement is timely since today's interview is with none other than Peter Alf of Mount Defiance. And Peter's a really fascinating guy with an eclectic professional background and a passion for making great spirits. Some of the things we discuss in this episode include how a NASA engineer turned carpenter applies his skills to distilling, how to transform a gas station office into a steampunk tasting room, the history and regulatory intricacies of misfit spirits like absinthe and cassis, the process of developing flavor profiles in liqueurs and vermouths, what to drink during the green hour in Paris, and much, much more. You can, of course, visit the show notes page to grab the social media handles for Mount Defiance Cidery and Distillery, and I really hope some of you listening out there get the chance to check out their awesome facilities in Middleburg sometime. Really great day trip, especially if you're in the D.C. area. But for now, I hope you can settle in and enjoy this fascinating interview with Peter Alf. Peter, thanks for being on the show. Thanks a lot. Happy to be here. Uh, so would you mind, before we get into some of the specifics about distilling, about what you do and why it's interesting and unique, would you mind just introducing yourself and telling people about what it is you do day to day? Sure. Uh, at the moment, I'm the head distiller at Mount Defiance Cidery and Distillery, which is in Middleburg, Virginia. Uh, Middleburg is about an hour directly west of Washington, D.C., it's about 10 miles past the current edge of the suburban sprawl, so you're out in farm country. It's gorgeous little town, horse country. There's a lot of wineries around, and, and we happen to be right on the, the uh, main street of Middleburg. It's almost like being in uh, Old Town, USA, so it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful place to be. Um, for me personally, I'm a D.C. resident. I've been living in D.C. for about 30 years with my wife, Peggy, um, Distilling is actually my third career. I began with an aerospace engineer degree from the University of Virginia, and I was in the, the space program for about 20 years. Wow. Uh, the final thing I did with in, in the space program, I worked for NASA for quite some time. I was downtown at NASA headquarters, had a chance to work in the space shuttle program where I designed launch windows. I worked on uh, the International Space Station doing design work and planning research to look at how physiology, human physiology changes in space. Wow. Uh, worked on things like sending robotic probes to Mars to <laughs> collect data that's important for human exploration. And the final job I did when I was at NASA headquarters was in international relations, which gave me an opportunity to, to travel around the world and talk to a lot of other uh, space agencies. So it was a fantastic job. I loved it. But it got to, put, got to a point where I said, hey, I got enough of life left in me to do something else and maybe get good <laughs> at it. So uh, I left NASA about 10 years ago, and I became a woodworker. So really, <laughs> yeah. that's interesting. Uh, I like that you're you're representing with the NASA shirt here today. Um, 
woodworking. That's really interesting. It's almost like you, you were working with uh, these really high-tech uh, space-age materials, and then you kind of step backward to something a little bit more essential, a little bit more primitive. And, th- and that was one of the two reasons I did it. Uh, when you work on, on, in the space program, a lot of the things you do are going to happen 10 years out. And, and as a, a manager at headquarters, my connection to the actual projects was a bit remote, and so I, I, even when I would see a, a piece of the space station launched, I didn't feel a personal connection to the work that I did to contribute to it. So I wanted to do something more tangible. I'm also the kind of person that if I see something that I think is beautiful or that I love, my first instinct is to want to build it myself. So when I go to museums, I would see work in the craftsman style by Gustav Stickley, and I would say, I, I think I can do that. And so I, I would try, and over time, I'd be, over time, I honed my talents in woodworking, and that gave me a crack at actually doing that as a career. That worked out quite well. I did it for three years, and then I had this opportunity to uh, unexpectedly move into a third career, so now I'm a, now I'm a distiller. That's really, really interesting. Um, what would you say are some of the skills that kind of translate between the engineering and the woodworking and the distillation? I, that's a great, great question. I, when I because I've thought about this. When I was offered the chance to, to become a distiller, my first reaction was, this, this feels like a really natural fit. And I think it did because you know, at, at NASA, I, I had the technical background. I could understand the physics of, of what's going on in distillation and the, the hardware that's used to, to uh, do that type of work. Um, also at NASA, because I was able to uh, travel the world, I was on the negotiating team that brought Russia into the International Space Station. And I traveled with a group of people for about two and a half years uh, to a number of different countries, and that's where I honed my love of alcohol. Because <laughs> after a hard day of negotiating, what do you want to do? You want to go out and have a drink with your with your colleagues. Right. And so, in Russia, I learned a lot about vodka. I visited the dacha of our interpreter, and her Russian parents, gave, you know, treated us to these vo- these lemon infused vodkas. And and uh, when I went to Japan, I was able to drink sake and so- uh, sochu. Uh, Brazil, I drank Camparino. When I went to Italy, I learned about Chinar. So just traveling the world gave me the place to, an opportunity to actually get involved in, in spirits at the source. Um, and the other thing then is moving to woodworking. I think that's where I b- really began to appreciate craft and, and what can be special about you know, pl- applying yourself to a kind of a small problem and trying to, to really uh, bring out the best in something, bring out the best in a piece of wood, create a piece of furniture that best matches where it's going to go. And so I think that was sort of an, an artistic side to me that I was able to, to work on as, as a woodworker. Mm. Yeah, and it kind of reminds me uh, a little bit, and maybe we'll talk about this a little bit later, but it reminds me of the concept of terroir, uh, where you're taking the unique personality of a specific grain or landscape or a grain grown on a landscape or a fruit grown in a specific hillside, and you're trying to then use your technical skills to translate that into a work of art mm-hmm. that somebody else can enjoy uh, in liquid form. So that's really, really cool. I, I, didn't, I knew about the NASA background, but I didn't know uh, about the kind of uh, the breadth of things that you did with NASA from designing things to actually negotiating. And uh, one of the things I really like about your travel story, the narrative that you just went through was that I imagine at the time when you were visiting those places, a lot of those spirits hadn't become popular in the U.S. in the way that they are today, like the Chinar or the uh, the Caipirinha, which is made mm-hmm. from um, cachaça. Mm-hmm. Uh, those things were probably very form- foreign to us, but you got to experience them right. at the source. 
And in fact, you know, many of these things I had never heard of before, uh, shochu in, in Japan. I, I, of course, you, everyone knows about sake, but uh, you know, I went out after work with my Japanese colleagues, as is, as is customary in Japan, where the company man goes out afterwards as a group and gets totally <laughs> toasted yeah. Yeah. as a way to build relationships. And, uh, and they really enjoyed their sochu and got me to enjoy it as well. That's great. Well, um, I would like to bring it back to the U.S. kind of the here and now, or at least the past couple of years when you've been um, building this really interesting company. And I like the way that you describe Middleburg as being outside of the urban sprawl, which is one of the reasons why I like to visit. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful drive out there. And certainly now that it's the fall season here in the Mid-Atlantic and we're about to just experience this really beautiful transformation in the weather, uh, I do recommend if, uh, I know we have a lot of listeners in the Mid-Atlantic, so I'm sure we'll plug this later on, but please do, uh, as you're considering your weekend day trips, think about going out and putting Middleburg on uh, on your map. As Peter mentioned, it really is that small town. It's got that one main street with a, some actually really cool shops and restaurants. Right, exactly. There's antique stores. There's wonderful places to eat. Uh, it's a really neat town. And uh, the other thing I'd like to mention, uh, because this podcast will be airing just days before we open a second location, the three years ago when we... Uh, bought a used an old service station that's what we are currently uh, we crammed everything all of our cider making and distill, distilling activities into a three bay garage of a service station uh, we've since built a major large cider barn just on the other side of town still in Middleburg awesome definitely if, if we see you uh, throw any announcements out on it on social media we'll repost those so our listeners can can also um, take advantage of the details so Looking at your operations, let's say, you've got the Cider Barn, which is really exciting. I remember when I visited the first time, I was really blown away by how it doesn't feel like a three-bay gas station. We'll we'll start by saying that. It it feels like this really comfy tasting room. And um, I'm wondering if you can talk about the process of taking that from a gas station to a really cool, unique destination. Okay, well, and that, and that part is uh, the history of how I got into distilling. Um, my first gig when I became a woodworker was to do a kitchen renovation for a couple, um, Betsy Haynes and Mark Cradian, who we, were, we knew. I didn't know Mark too well, um, but my wife knew Betsy quite well. So I was working on their kitchen, and Mark at the time was a political advisor to top brass in Iran and Afghanistan. He'd been traveling back and forth for seven years, and he was home on a tour of duty at the time, uh, um, while I was working on the kitchen, so we got to know each other quite well. Um, fast forward seven years, Mark decides he's had enough of working in war zones. He comes back to the U.S. and says, let's do something a little bit more bucolic and decides to look, look at opening a cidery. So he scouted out the locations. He's the one who bought the uh, Middleburg gas station. And uh, since he knew me from the kitchen renovation, he hired me to do the tasting room in the gas station. So... Pretty much the, the old office space is what I worked on to develop at the tasting room in a, in a style we Mark and I both enjoy, which is steampunk, a little steampunk element. So that mm-hmm. was a lot of fun. And uh, at the time, he was focusing mostly on the cidery, but he realized that the paperwork that was necessary to get a distilling permit was not that much more than what you had to get for a cidery permit. So we got both of them. And then we partitioned up the space and started figuring out what was going to go where and started buying equipment and uh, it went from there. Yeah. I really like the, uh, especially the belt 
operated fan system that you have. Are they two paddle fans? They are two paddle fans. This is a, a, a craftsman up in Pennsylvania called Woolen Mill Fans, and he works with. He does the uh, basically the castings for the solid bronze that's part of these fans, and they're run by one central motor that then a, be- a belt pulls the other pulleys, the other fans in sequence. And uh, if you like those, just wait till you come to the cider barn because we have four that are about five times the size of the ones you saw there. So they're just tremendous. They're beautiful fans. I saw, I think I might've seen something about that. So I'm definitely excited. Uh, the One of the things we talk about on this podcast quite often is the peripheral aspect of enjoying flavor. And I think for me, the setting where I go to enjoy a cocktail or a drink, even if that setting is my own living room, that, that kind of sets the tone for part of the experience. And so when I walked into your tasting room for the first time, uh, that definitely struck me as a really thoughtful and really kind of cool place that I just wasn't going to get anywhere else. So that, that definitely, I think your craftsmanship and then the, the willingness to go out and find these really neat other, um, fans and decorations was a really, uh, nice touch for me. Thanks. Yeah. We, that's, that's what we really enjoy about it. So let's talk now about some of the liquid stuff. So we know your background, we know your passions and your skills. What does Mount Defiance do? And, you know, what makes you maybe different or more unique than some of the other companies out there who are producing a gin and a whiskey or a gin and a vodka, let's say? Um, I think of Mount Defiance is sort of the land of lost spirits. Um, I was lucky that Mark gave me pretty much complete creative control over what to make. And so I kind of looked out at the landscape and said, uh, you know, I don't really want to just make another whiskey because everyone's popping up with another whiskey. We didn't want to start with vodka because we didn't have the right equipment for it. So instead, I kind of focused on what spirits were popular historically, but for one reason or another have fallen out of favor. Maybe they're starting to come back. Maybe I can do something to help them come back. And so... Uh, let me talk about three of those in particular. Yeah, uh, please. Absinthe, cassis, and vermouth, and that I'll talk about in that order because that's the order I actually got involved in them. Uh, absinthe, yeah, when I was first invited to be the distiller, I, you know, that, that was one of the drinks I really enjoyed, and I said, "Wow, maybe I can actually make absinthe." So, uh, as you may, uh, your re- listeners probably know, absinthe has not been made in the United States uh, until about. 10 years ago, it had not been made for 80 or 90 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, it had Production had stopped because the U.S. government put a ban on it as a result of a number of different factors. Uh, uh, bottom line, most of those, those factors were specious. They, weren't, you know, they, they, they thought it caused hallucinations. They thought it was bad for you. And all this came down to the substance in Grand Wormwood, which is one of the ingredients called Thujon. And so there was a ban on any alcohol called that contains thujon. Now that so that wasn't actually a, a ban on absinthe per se. It was a ban on liquids containing thujon. And uh, until ten years ago, there was no way to prove that something had or didn't have thujon. But once they uh, the technology advanced, you could do GCMS analysis of liquids. A guy named Ted Bro uh, actually did that did that, did that analysis and proved that if you distill Wormwood after the soaking in the alcohol, Thujon doesn't come over through the steam in an appreciably, in a, in a measurable way. So absinthe never was illegal in a way. It never had that illegal substance, but it took a while to finally prove it. Right. Um, so 
now it was permitted, and I decided that would be a, a great thing to, to start off with. So uh, I first searched for, I decided, well, I have to, have to you know, learn the recipe, find good ingredients, and I was very fortunate to find an individual in southwest Virginia within driving distance who knew a lot about making absinthe and who grew absinthe herbs as part of his business. He's a lot, lot like me. He's a silversmith, and he, he crafts the finest silver absinthe spoons that you can find. Really? Uh, and he grew absinthe herbs and had a website called absintherbs.com. <laughs> <laughs> so I gave him a call, and I said, I'd like to come down and visit you. And, and he wasn't used to people coming down to visit. He was usually used to mail order, but he said, sure, come on down. I went down right. and bought a bunch of, uh, of his herbs and went back and tr- tested out a recipe that I had found. And it turned out to be not terribly bad. It was, uh, it was decent. And I went down and visited him again and let him try it. And I think he kind of realized that this guy might actually be serious about what he's trying to do. And so he sat me down and said, listen, grasshopper, <laughs> <laughs> and proceeded to teach me a lot about recipes and the proper technique to make absinthe. Right. And I brought that back up, uh, Got the right type of still to do it because the you know the stills matter and uh, and de- developed a recipe that uh, I think is really one of the best that's made in the U.S. now. And what is the proper still to use when making absinthe? I use a it's an alembic still is the basic mm-hmm. shape that you want to use. You want to you don't want to use a rectifying still, the type that's used for vodka. It's a very simple, old-fashioned still. So I tried to you know in in my in my recipe my goal was to recreate to the best i could a french style absence now you know there are recipes that out there mine's based on one of these old recipes you're never going to make it taste exactly the same because again the exact herbs the exact shape of the still but that's the style i wanted to make i wanted to be, get something traditional and if i figured out how to make that then i figured maybe later i'll do some experimentation these days there's some absence that are you know at they use hibiscus flowers to make it red or they use star anise instead of green anise and so there's different things that people toy around with i said figured let's start with a good traditional french absinthe sure and especially at a time when there wasn't too much else on the market i mean that's 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 a really good thing to strive for to help bring a spirit out of obscurity which you know obviously is one of your stated goals so um Alembic stills, man, we don't talk too, too much about stills on this podcast because in the audio format's a little bit tougher than a visual format, but I believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I believe that an Alembic still is a type of pot still, right? That's correct. An Alembic still, it has a specific, almost like a pear shape. It has uh, almost like a, you know, the, what the, my particular still is uh, called a bain-marie because it is basically a double boiler, so it has a large kettle with a, what's called a helmet, and the helmet is almost like an onion shape. And then it has the traditional bent copper tube that goes down, and in, in, in mine, there's I just have a, a large copper vessel with a coil going through it that's filled with water. It's a very old-fashioned, simple still. Yeah. And uh, with absinthe, you, you start by soaking one set of herbs in high-proof alcohol. Uh, I use NGS to soak the herbs. Um, you start off with grand wormwood, and, and again, wormwood, if your listeners haven't heard of it, uh, it's not a, a piece of wood that has holes in it from worms. It's actually a perennial herb, uh, one of the most bitter herbs that is, is out there. Uh, so you start with grand wormwood, aniseed, fennel seed, and in my case, I use a little bit of peppermint. You soak that, then you dilute it a bit and distill it 
and the distillate comes out at about 150 proof. And the wormwood, you know, as I mentioned, is, is, is terribly bitter, but bitterness does not come through in the steam. Just like Thujan doesn't come through, the bitterness com doesn't come through. So you get the wonderful taste of the wormwood without the bitterness. Mm, that's really interesting. And I'm sure there's some, some really specific chemical reasons for that. Um, I can tell you that Mount Defiance Absinthe is what I have in my atomizer at home. So when I make my Sazeracs, I, um, instead of doing the traditional absinthe rinse in the glass, and then either chugging it or discarding it, both of which I prefer not to do. Mm -hmm. um, I take the little atomizer, my little perfume bottle essentially, and I just spritz a few spritzes of that absinthe right on the right on the surface of my Sazerac, and then I express my lemon peel on there, and it's delicious. So we've covered absinthe. What other spirits? What are these other kind of misfit spirits that you're that you want to talk about? Uh, next one I'll talk about is cassis liqueur. Uh, cassis liqueur is a black currant liqueur. Uh, it's been popular in Europe forever. Uh, it's been less popular in the United States. Uh, and one of those reasons is that the commercial cultivation of black currants was banned about 100 years ago. Uh, back then, they were trying to reforest the eastern seaboard with white pines. And there's an uh, insect that carries a particular disease called white pine blister rust that goes between the white pines and black currant bushes and the black currant bushes are a vector for that disease so they said okay we better get rid of all the black currants and they banned the, any future cultivation they ripped them out so uh, that meant two things it meant that there were no domestic producers of cassis because you're going to want to be wanting to use fresh berries for it and the second is that there was just not that much of the product to be had from from europe um, so it turns out that uh, mature white pines are not really susceptible to this disease. And a farmer named Greg Quinn up in New York State uh, convinced the state of New York to uh, get rid of the ban. And he proceeded to then begin cultivating black currants. So uh, once a year I, after harvest, I go up and I visit Greg. I, I like the idea of getting my currants from the guy who made it possible to have black currants in, in New York State. It's still banned, by the way, in, in a lot of other states, including Virginia. People, I guess there's just not been someone who, who wanted to, felt strongly enough to get the law changed, and it has to be changed state by state at this point. Um, so, yeah, I, I bring back the, the freshest of currants from Greg, uh, begin soaking them in high-proof alcohol, and basically cassis liqueur is, uh, are the berries, the alcohol and sweeteners. And so I toyed around a lot with my recipe. If, it, if a lot of folks might think about cassis liqueur as something that's gathering dust in the back of their grandmother's liquor cabinet, and if you drink it, it's like drinking cough medicine or something just so, so sickeningly sweet. And I really wanted to have something that expressed the flavor of the fruit much more. And so I worked a lot on the balance of alcohol, dilution, and sweetness. And I also played around with cane versus beet sugar. Traditionally in Europe, they use beet sugar to, sh to sweeten a lot of their liqueurs. And surprisingly enough, I found that it, ma it made a difference. And yeah. So I, I use beet sugar to sweeten uh, the cassis. That's really excellent. Yeah. Uh, one of the really interesting and obscure threads, and maybe, hey, maybe we'll do a theme episode down the road on this, but is this thread between ingredients and uh, disease or pests 
and regulations. So mm-hmm. our industry, as as you know, being from Virginia and a distiller and all the regulations that you have to deal with, our industry is kind of saddled with regulations that in many cases aren't friendly to our success, whether that success means launching new and different products or just serving people reasonable amounts or types of alcohol like cocktails. Um, and then just talking about the way that you describe the process of getting these these black currants from New York state where it's one of the only states where it's still allowed. Um, one of the other, and, and then finally this sugar beet connection um, with France and it seems like these are all such disparate threads, but there are other stories that are so similar. For example, uh, in the chartreuse liqueur, um, they have different types of alcohol for different types of their ingredients because at one point the phylloxera epidemic, which was another type of pest, hit France. And so that was one of the things that prompted them to switch from a primarily a grape base um, spirit to a more a different base, which is for them was the sugar beet. So, you know, and phylloxera is something that, that completely changed, transformed the entire landscape of the, the grape world and and the winemaking world. And there's so many implications of that. So it's just really interesting, uh, as you go back historically and look at these spirits like cassis, like, um, absinthe, uh, just the, these regulations really have a ripple effect, uh, and, and they tie into so many other sectors of society. So it's really interesting to hear your take on it. And I will say for folks who are interested in cassis, Check out our episode with Dan McCall, um, who also spoke a little bit about Cassis uh, uh, pertaining to some of his experiences with it in France and using it actually in some flavor experiments, potentially in his lab and, and in, his, in his own home as well. Yeah, one, one other comment about phylloxera. It's funny that you brought that up, but phylloxera is what actually led to the rise in popularity of absinthe in France because when all the wine went away, the proletariat, the, the masses, had to drink something different. And absinthe was what came to be the replacement for wine in, in France. And it was really a combination of the wine industry after they recovered, we were, were recovering, and the, uh, the temperance movement in France that really led to the ban because they wanted to get people to switch back off of absinthe and back onto wine. So that you're right, there are just all these connections. Yeah, it's very, it's very interesting. So we've got absinthe and we've got cassis uh, how how does one generally enjoy cassis so i like that you said that you um took very special care to formulate your product in a way that it's not going to give you that overly sweet cough syrup um kind of impression how, how would you recommend if someone's picking up their first bottle of cassis what would they do with it the most popular way of enjoying cassis in europe and one of my favorite ways is to mix it with either wine or champagne and if you mix it with champagne, it's known as a Cure Royale. And if you should mix it with white wine, it's known as Cure. And uh, particularly if in the summertime you're sitting out in the sun, it's just a wonderful, refreshing, uh, refreshing drink. Um, now, if you want to get into one of the reasons I formulated it in a way that wasn't overbearingly sweet was also so that you can just sip it by itself. Just put it uh, on the rocks and, and as an after dinner drink, it's quite enjoyable. Sure. Maybe even just a little bit of sparkling on top of there or something. Um, yeah, I, I, um, I honestly have not tasted it. So I think I'm going to try and get my hands on a bottle and maybe we can, um, feature a few special cocktails with that Mm -hmm. since I, I don't think I see it too often in cocktails. Maybe that there's some opportunity to play around, but, um, what's the third spirit that you'd like to tell folks about here? 
um, Vermouth, which is of the three, my most recent release. We released our first uh, batch in January. And uh, so Vermouth, you know, back again in the early 1900s, about half of all of the known cocktails had vermouth as a significant ingredient in them. Uh, when, when people thought about a martini back then, the, the ratios were reversed from what they are today. It was a, primarily a vermouth-style drink. Um, following World War I, there was just a shift in the national psyche. I think people you know, wanted to forget about what had been recently happening. They wanted to uh, get a little bit drunk and do it quickly, so the drinks became much stiffer. Uh, they, they weren't as sweet. I think uh, we are in the Mad Men era. People viewed sweet drinks as not, not masculine and not sophisticated, and so that's when you got into the James Bond martini era. Mm. And that led to reductions in how much vermouth was used in the drink, the importance of vermouth. The advertising industry followed suit and uh, began to encourage people to use less and less vermouth and drier vermouths. And then the industry followed suit. They began making their vermouths drier, less complex, less flavorful, um, until it got to the point where you could hardly tell the difference between various brands of bland vermouth. And it went, that was the way it stayed for about 30 years. And now we're beginning to, again, with the cocktail culture changing, people beginning to recognize how wonderful and, and varied and important a good vermouth can be to, to a cocktail. So uh, that's one that we think we, I really, really you know, wanted to get into because it seemed like the type of drink that the palette of flavors that you can choose from when you're formulating it are just so vast. And so this is one of the first times where I basically started from scratch and said, okay, I want to build this product from the ground up. And I need to give a shout out to my friend, uh, San Dr. Sandy Christmas, who is my cohort in developing the vermouth. He is a home bartender. His main qualification, home bartender. That's great. And, uh, <laughs> and small animal veterinarian. <laughs> anyway, he, was, he and I basically created a flavor library using uh, our apple brandy as the fortifying agent and as the maceration agent. And uh, uh, let me go back to mention what, what, what is in a vermouth. It, it consists of four main items. It consists of a base white wine. It consists of botanicals, a fortifying agent, usually grape brandy, but the nine, mine is not the only one that uses apple brandy. And then it includes sweeteners. So we started off by uh, using a lot of the same herbs that I use in my absinthe, in addition to many, many more. Created a flavor, li flavor library with them. Played around with how much each of those flavors was required to make certain impressions on the tongue and the palate. And then started mixing and matching and uh, kind of going in this direction and going in that direction. It was just a lot of fun to, to play around and watch this kind of the flavor build and grow. One other thing I, I wanted to mention is that uh, vermouth actually comes from the German word vermut, which is the word for wormwood. And in Europe, all vermouths have to have wormwood in as an ingredient. Now, I mentioned that it's, it's a very, very bitter herb, and so I believe that the most European vermouths have a very, very, very small amount, and it doesn't contribute to the flavor at all. But I wanted to, to actually have the, the wormwood contribute to the flavor. So I actually take wormwood, soak it in brandy low wines, and then distill that. And just like when you distill absinthe, you leave the, uh, the bitterness behind, I end up having a wormwood-flavored brandy as part of the brandy that I use to fortify the, the, the vermouth. Okay. 
Um, the wine that we used for our first bottling, we teamed up with a winery down the street, Cana Vineyards. They provided half, you know, they provided the wine for it. Uh, for the sweeteners, most are, most commercial brands use caramelized sugar to sweeten the vermouth. Uh, I chose to use a mixture of honey, which I get from Gunter's in Berryville, Virginia, and caramelized sugar. So again, you know, just because it's local doesn't mean it's good, but it's a lot of fun to be able to pull products that are from, from the fields and the, and the uh, surrounding region and right. put it into your product. Wow, that is such a cool story. And correct me if I'm wrong, but besides the... Uh, kind of unique little twist that you have with the wormwood. Most flavor in a vermouth comes from, aside from the grape flavor profile, comes from the uh, steeping afterwards in the wines, the the fortified wines. Correct. Well, in in my case, I and I every I imagine there's a lot of different techniques, but I begin by steeping the herbs and spices, and there are some 15, you know, the, the roots, the roots are the things that provide the bittering. So gentian root and orris root. And so I soak those all in high proof brandy to begin with. Okay. And then that is strained. And then that is blended together with the wine and the sweeteners. Gotcha. Gotcha. Cool. Um, flavor library. What is that? And what was that process like? Because I, I've just finished, uh, Finished is an interesting word for it because nothing's on the shelves yet, but I've just, uh, I'm in the very final steps of uh, launching some really interesting bitters flavors here in the next couple months. And I have a bunch of spreadsheets that I use to kind of like track those different test batches. So is that what you mean by a flavor library or is it something completely different? Well, basically we took about 20 different Roots, herbs, spices, shiitake mushroom, <laughs> and we just, just soak those in high-proof brandy okay. for a cer- certain period of time. Okay, so now you have all the elements that could theoretically go into the vermouth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and next, you know, we got together with uh, a larger group of people to sort of calibrate. You know, it, just, if you soak uh, peppermint in, you know, a cup of peppermint in a cup of brandy. You, uh, that's not going to give you the same sort of flavor density as if you soak shiitake mushroom in fla- flavored brandy I mean, and, and brandy. So we had to know, you know, do we need to put one ounce of this flavor into the final product or do we need to put three ounces to get that kind of impact? So we sort of calibrated each one and then we started the, the, the playing around with it. Wow. That is, and that, that's such, that's such a great amount of work and, uh, I can't, as somebody who has done a, a much smaller version of that at a much smaller scale, I imagine, in terms of the volume of the liquid, I, I mean, um, the, I just admire that so much just because I think one of the one of the things that I'm finding as I learn more about the process that people uh, go through to create their spirits, uh, we were talking before we started recording about the interview with Jonathan from Don Ciccio, um, it, very similar things that I'm finding. I'm, I just have such a great amount of respect for the amount of work that you all put into your product. And I, if there's one thing that listeners I'd like listeners to get out of it is to like get some of that appreciation, but then to go out and then knowing some of those things that go into the process, taste the spirits and taste the, the vermouths and, and the liqueurs and, and just really enjoy that as a more informed consumer. I think really to me, that's, that's where a lot of the joy comes from. So thank you for describing that. That was such, such a cool process. Um, do you want to give a quick plug for your brandies? Because I just love them so much. Well, currently we just make one apple brandy. Okay. For apple brandy, because we're a cidery as well. I haven't talked too much about the cider side of the business, but we uh, 
Uh, I take our farmhouse cider and distill it, and that is our apple brandy. Uh, we, we've been aging, filled up a number of uh, large barrels a couple of years ago, and we're sort of bottling it as we go to uh, as demand warrants. But it's uh, just mellowing out and getting better and better over time. So brandy is and and brandy is sort of the backbone of of so many other products that we make. As I mentioned, it goes into our vermouth. We also came out with a product called Pomo recently, which is, again, something popular in France, which is a mixture of sweet cider, apple brandy, and aged in an in uh, oak barrel for one year. And oh, so wow, you can really think cool. think of it as a fortified, like an uh, apple port is the way that we describe it to people. Interesting. That's really cool. That's I'll have to, I'll have to, it seems like you've launched a few products since I've last gone to the tasting room. So I think now, I think now I'm going to have to, uh, schedule a weekend out there and go visit. But, um, so if I were a listener right now and I had never heard of some of these things that we just talked about, I might be a little bit intimidated, uh, and I might be a little bit hesitant about where to start. Maybe, I, maybe I'm excited to try something, but it is a little bit overwhelming because you obviously just threw a lot of technical information at us. Um, from the cocktail side of things, are there any really obvious applications of these, maybe the spirits that you featured here that could help people like go home and, and make them on their own? I know we featured the Kier. I know I mentioned the Sazerac. Are there any others that, that you could lend people? Sure. And I, I think that you know, depending upon where someone is in their evolution of their palates and their cocktail making ex- and drinking experience, I think in general a lot of people in the U.S. sort of start with favoring the sweet and eventually over time moving to appreciate the bitter. So if, if someone were just starting out in, in cocktail making, I think that then you'd want to look at the more sweet and creamy type of liqueurs. Um, Things like creme de cacao or coffee liqueurs, making black and white Russians, uh, amaretto sours. We also make an amaretto. Um, those sorts of things, fuzzy, fuzzy navels, those sorts of drinks, I think, are very approachable, fairly easy to make. Um, as the people begin appreciating uh, more complex spirits, then you can move on to something that has a bit more alcohol and stronger flavors. I would put Cure Royale in that category, sidecars. Um, Apple brandy, a really nice cocktail, is the Jack Rose. Okay. Um, Pisco Sour. Again, I'm tossing out things that we don't make, but I think it just kind of fall in that same sort of category. And then finally, you know, uh, at the other end of the spectrum, the more bitter type uh, uh, cocktails or herbaceous or strong cocktails. Then you look at absinthe. And and the way I prefer to drink absinthe, they're they're lovely as a spritz in a cocktail, but uh, I really love mine just diluted with water, the classic French preparation where you take about an ounce of absinthe and add anywhere from three to five ounces of water, depending upon your taste. I think more dilute. People sometimes feel like they ought to be drinking it strong because there's this mental notion about absinthe, but I think you really ought to dilute it more rather than less, and then just enjoying a nice big glass of absinthe on a warm day. Mm-hmm. Um, also, Boulevardiers are another good example where you just swap out bourbon for the gin in a uh, Negroni, and the Negronis, of course. Yeah. I really like um, the way you described the uh, the, the dilution uh, enhancing the the effect of the absinthe. Uh, I, I think a couple keys for me when I'm enjoying absinthe that way, I really like the water to be ice, ice, ice cold. Absolutely. And then let it warm up over time because the flavors just sort of slowly evolve and change. And mm-hmm. uh, the, the fragrance just fills the room when the drip starts happening. 
Yep. And there, there, there are a couple of, a couple of things I want to point out. So absinthe, I think overall is in the tradition of any set cocktails. So co- or not cocktails, but any set spirits and liqueurs, things that feature that licorice flavor. So some things would be like Ouzo and what's Rocky. Rocky. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a bunch of different spirits out there across Europe for sure. And probably in yeah. other places of the world as and, well. And many of those are true anise liqueurs, uh, whereas absinthe, and I try to encourage people, you know, I'm someone who, uh, I don't like black licorice, but I love absinthe. And so some people just can't get past that black licorice flavor and mm-hmm. it's never going to work for them. But, uh, but still, I always encourage people to give it a try because there's so many other flavors that are going on and that, that change over time as you drink it, that, uh, you ought to give it a shot. Yeah. And I believe the other fact I want to drop here, since this is one of the, the we're, we're getting the opportunity to kind of feature absinthe this episode is that if you go to a place that serves absinthe in the traditional style, they generally have a really cool, uh, I would, I would call it like a vessel with some, with dispenser knobs called a fountain. Mm-hmm. And they then, can you just describe, you, we mentioned absinthe spoons earlier in the episode. Can you just describe the way that absinthe is served and maybe the sure. colors that then sure. come out? So absinthe typically uh, is, gr- is a greenish color to begin with. Now, depending upon the age of the bottle, uh, if it's naturally f- colored, which uh, any really good absinthe is going to be naturally colored, it will change color over time because it, the, the, the photo, the chlorophyll uh, will go will be broken down it'll change from the green to a olive sort of color in French they call it fumet which is like dead leaf color so anyway you start with that in the in the bottom of your glass there's absinthe glasses there but that are shaped such that it has a bowl at the bottom and you fill that bowl up and then by the time you fill the rest of the glass with water that it's properly diluted so you, you put the absinthe in the glass, you set it under the little dripper, you can have a fountain, you can pour it from a sports bottle, there's any, the fountains are just a fun, fancy way to do it. So in the case of the fountain, uh, you start the water drip, and if you like to have a bit more sweetness to your absinthe, that's when the spoon comes in, because you balance the spoon, it's a flat spoon that balances on the lip of the glass, and you put a sugar cube on it, and as the water drips through the sugar cube, even though the water is very cold, normally cold water doesn't dissolve water, doesn't dissolve sugar, but the dripping action actually dissolves that sugar into the absinthe and it gives you a little bit more sweetness. Right. And it's the, the spoons are slotted so that as it, as it kind of filters down, you get a little bit of that, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. So absinthe spoons are a fun kind of cool little esoteric uh, aspect of cocktail culture, as is the kind of act of enjoying absinthe on its own. Uh, it has a lot of uh, cultural baggage uh, kind of tied up with it, as we've mentioned. So definitely something that I would encourage folks to get into now that we uh, actually have access to stuff here in the U.S. that we can have confidence is not uh, kind of sullied by Thujon. Mm-hmm. So um, anything else you want to tell us about Mount Defiance uh, or any of your products before we move on to the lightning round here? I guess uh, one thing to put a plug in, we the vermouth has just been accepted for sale in Virginia ABC stores. So come January, uh, it, it'll be available in a, not in a limited number of stores. We uh, got a gold medal at the New York World Wine Spirits Competition just about three weeks ago. Uh, I've been finding that 
you know, people don't think of vermouth as something that you can drink by itself. Again, it's just, it's a mixer. But this one I really, really designed to be a sipper as well. And I, I just love watching people drink it to, for the first time because their face changes. They're like, this is vermouth. I can't believe this is vermouth. This is delicious. <laughs> so uh, the shameless plug for the, for the vermouth. That's um, great. And congratulations on the award. Thank you. Um, it's available also in a number of uh, liquor stores in D.C. I think uh, Cordial has, a, has Absinthe, Cassis, and I believe, I believe the Vermouth. So uh, Divine's in Columbia Heights, Schneider's on Capitol Hill, uh, Central Downtown, all the key places, S&R. So uh, look, for, look for our stuff. That's great. Love Schneider's. Can't <laughs> say enough good things about my, my, uh, my local liquor store. So <laughs> I'll definitely hit, hit, uh, hit up the uh, Mount Defiance shelf there. So getting into the lightning round questions here, just a little uh, fun way for us to get to the personality of all of our individual guests by asking kind of the same set of questions and uh, seeing what new answers we come up with. So the first question is, what is your favorite cocktail? And if you can't come up with a favorite of all time, what's something that you've been maybe obsessed with recently? Okay, I'll toss out three if you don't mind. Go ahead. First of all, I'm I'm a distiller. I'm not a home bartender. So when it comes to home bartending, I go for the simpler drinks. So my go-to mixed drink when I'm at home is a Manhattan. Pretty simple to make, and I love being able to use my sweet vermouth in it. So that's that's one I drink regularly at home. Uh, when I go out, I let the, the professionals do the more complicated work, and you mentioned the Sazerac. Again, mm-hmm. a drink that uh, involves absinthe and is just so lovely when done well. Mm-hmm. And the last one I'll mention is uh, a, a cassis cocktail called the Parisian. A Parisian okay. is a combination of uh, vermouth, gin, and cassis. And I had this one fun fun experience. I went to uh, Bistro du Coin, a uh, French restaurant near DuPont Circle, and I walked up and asked the bartender for a Parisian, and he didn't know what it was. And I said, well, cassis, vermouth, and uh, gin. And uh, what was so much fun was that he just took those three ingredients, and I didn't tell him proportions or anything, and, and he was able to apply his knowledge of the strengths and the sweetnesses of these different ingredients, and he brought out a perfect Parisian uh, people at my table said, what's that? And they ordered it. People from another table looked over. So I, th- I think I had the whole place <laughs> drinking Parisians by the end of the night. <laughs> that's really cool. So that's, uh, I yeah, I, I like that. And I think that's exactly what uh, what I was looking for because I I kind of had the, the indication that this would be really good with gin. You know, mm-hmm. Cassis paired with gin, uh, the French do have a, a decent tradition of gin um, and, and as well as vermouth. So I think that's, that's something I'm excited to try at home. Very cool answers. And I enjoyed uh, making it with uh, 1-8 Distillings barrel-aged gin. The, 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 again, the, the, I don't make gin, but just looking around, I'm just noticing barrel-aged gins seem to be the thing these days. And boy, they can, they can be so different and so delicious. So yeah. that was particularly nice in a Parisian. I, I don't know if it was that gin, or but I'd, so I, I do know that they're aging something in Calvados barrels. Hmm. So, you know, just the, another French... French tie-in and another brandy t- apple brandy tie-in as and, well. And we're aging our uh, Pomo in one-eight barrels. <laughs> no, there you go. <laughs> we love these relationships. Yeah, there's a lot of cross-pollination that goes on within the industry, and um, it's it's really cool because everybody has. Uh, there's so much value to go around. Everyone has their own unique thing for the most part, and uh, even though there's a lot of um, similar categories like gins, like whiskeys, everybody's got such a unique take on it that there's still value in that. I don't. I don't feel uh worried about oversaturation because wherever i turn it's something 
unique, something uniquely valuable. So I, I, I like, I like the relationships that we build in the industry and it's just a lot of fun. That's why I try to interview you, all you folks. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we buy your bitters and yeah. sell them to the public. <laughs> um, so moving on from cocktails to spirits, if you could, um, pick a favorite spirit of all time, what would that be? Kind of like a desert island scenario, one spirit for the rest of your life. <laughs> well, uh, I'm all about the absinthe, and I've already kind of talked about why I enjoy it, particularly because, you know, it's not like the first sip tells you what you're drinking. You have to drink a whole glass of it before you can really appreciate it. And, not, and beyond drinking my absinthe, there's a lot of different ways that you can approach the making of an absinthe. So there's you know, every, there's no two absinths that are alike, and they are they can be so very different. So it's enjoyable to be able to explore other manufacturers. I focus on U.S. manufacturers just because I'm more curious about the U.S. market. But right. uh, it's, it's just a, a fun beverage to try you know, a lot more wide range of styles. I believe was it Corsair that recently came out with one. Well, Corsair has Corsair Red, which is the, as an example of the hibiscus uh, flavored, okay, colored red. Um, the um, I'm trying to remember the name now. The distillery in Pittsburgh, um, Wiggle, Wiggle came out not too long ago with one called Absent Minded. It's a blanche. Ours is a vert. A vert means you take the distillate, heat it up, and add a second set of herbs, which gives it the color and additional flavor. Theirs is a blanche, which means it stops after the distillation phase. Right, almost like they've got absent minded and forgot to <laughs> add the, the second uh, second maceration. Uh, cool. So yeah, folks, please do check out some of those other absinths that are on the market after you uh, get a get a taste for the Mount Defiance and get hooked for sure. My favorite question, if you could have a cocktail with anybody in the world, past or present, who would it be? What would you drink? What would you talk about? And where would you go? Okay. Well, I'm the first thing I think about when I consider that question is where and wh where and when and the place would be P Paris, late 1800s at a sidewalk Parisian cafe, drinking a glass of absinthe, of course, because uh, the hour between 5 and 6 p.m. at that time in Belle Epoque, Paris, was known as the green hour. That's, again, because there was no wine to be had, and they were all drinking absinthe <laughs> between 5 and 6 o'clock to get their evening going. So that's, right. that's where I'm going to be. Then I thought about you know, who I would be drinking it with, and there's a whole range of... Uh, of no notorious characters who were absinthe drinkers back then. Uh, Oscar Wilde, Rimbaud, Baudelaire, uh, Jerry, all, a bunch of these real, you know, artists and characters. Uh, and But they would all kind of intimidate me, I think. So my, my choice would be Alphonse Mucha, who okay. was a uh, painter and a decorative artist back in the time. He was a big Art Nouveau painter. And in fact, our... our Absinthe bottle and our sweet vermouth label, both of the labels are inspired by Mucha's artwork. And so I, I love his stuff, and I would just love to sit down and talk to him about Art Nouveau. That's fantastic. I really like the label on the absinthe bottle. I haven't seen the vermouth yet. Um, <clears throat> I also really like the, the um, French surrealist reference there with Rambeau and Baudelaire. Uh, those are two poets that I, I studied during my time, <laughs> uh, during my MFA program, and I really got into their stuff. It's really weird. It's really aggressive mm -hmm. in many cases, mm -hmm. which you don't necessarily expect from a Parisian sensibility, but it kind of, I guess, getting a flavor for that sort of writing and knowing that they were notorious absinthe mm -hmm. and vibers kind of- Big time. <laughs> yeah, kind of kind of gives you a bit of a feel for what it was like 
in that part of the world in that time. So very, very cool answer. Um, are there any books about cocktails or distilling that have been particularly influential or enjoyable for you? Sure. Uh, I guess the first one, uh, Vermouth by Adam Ford. It's a really fantastic and detailed and easily read history of vermouth most of the book is the history and then it talks a bit about current producers and styles so that was a really fun book in fact i'll be honest that the reason i got turned my attention towards vermouth was really reading that book wow well that's a that's high praise for for the book for sure um the next is uh the book of absent the cultural history by phil baker this one gets more into if you want to read about Rimbaud and Baudelaire and their absinthe drinking back in Paris. This one gets into detail about all of those folks and how absinthe played a, a part in their lives. So that was just a fun read. And the last, uh, I think, was mentioned on one of your recent podcasts, The Drunken Botanist. Mm. And that was just a lot of fun, again, reading about how all of these different substances can play into making different alcohol spirits. Yeah, definitely one of the most recommended books on this show. And part of that's because I love it so much that I'll bring it up even when other people don't. <laughs> but yeah, very, very good book by Amy Stewart. And uh, for for folks who are interested in the way that distillers and people who are in the industry talk about flavor, I think that book is a really good introduction because a lot of the flavors that we get on the final product are a result of, they're almost always a result of natural stuff. When it's, when it's well-made, it's a result of natural um, plants and, and ingredients. So learning about those ingredients is probably the best way to get more intimately uh, associated with those flavors. So really good recommendations for sure. Um, is there any advice, if you could just give one piece of advice to somebody who's just starting out their journey as a home bartender, maybe somebody who visits your tasting room for the first time and says, you know, I'd really love to start getting into cocktails. Um, do you have any advice? What would you tell them if they were to visit your tasting room? I think I'd say focus on all of your ingredients. So your, your cocktail is only going to be as good as the weakest link in it. So don't put together a wonderful Manhattan and use the cheapest vermouth you can find. All of the ingredients matter. And I'll give two little pieces of advice. The other one is that uh, plugging a plug in for craft. Try craft, but understand what you're buying because sometimes it's tough to buy, look at a label and really understand what's in that bottle. You know, So read the label, first of all, as a starting point. Uh, and I'm not casting dispersions. Just because you're small doesn't mean you're good. Just because it's, you're big doesn't mean you're bad. But I think people ought to know what they're buying. If, if it says on the label, produced and bottled by, that means it was made from grain, you know, from start to finish by that distillery. If it says bottled by and the you know, distilled in Indiana, that means they bought bulk products and probably could have aged it, could have had some hand in the, in the making of it, but it's not their product. So again, not that that's bad, but you ought to understand those sorts of things when, when you uh, are making your purchases. For sure. And a lot of times if you are intimidated by the, the label on a, a bottle of spirits or even a bottle of wine, uh, please, please, please do feel empowered to ask somebody at that place. Mm -hmm. Um, because chances are they'll be able to at least shed some light on the question that you have. Um, and that gives that, that, I think that's a good plug for maybe an episode we should do. I, I might do a, a guide to, to reading some of these spirits labels. Sure. I think that would be useful. So hopefully down the road, we'll be able to provide you with the definitive guide to all of those questions, like whether it was produced or just <laughs> bottled by somebody. But um, those are really good pieces of advice. And I will definitely be keeping that in mind as I make my cocktails over the next couple of weeks. The cocktail is only as good as its weakest link, for right. sure. 
Um, Peter, before we let you go here, what are the best ways for people to get in touch with you, you, your company, and the best ways for them to learn how to visit? Sure. Um, my email address, peter.alf, and the last name is A-H-L-F at mountdefiance.com, and that's M-T-Defiance, all one word. Um, our Facebook page is Mount Defiance Cider, and we have a website, www.mountdefiance.com. So any of those ways uh, is a great way to, to check us out. Great. And yeah, we will include all of the uh, social media links on our show notes page so you can follow Mount Defiance on social media. Keep up to date with all of their updates, including the opening of their new Cider Barn, which is going to be on Saturday, October 7th. Peter, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. I just want to remind you that this episode might be over, but the journey and the discussion are just beginning. If you're excited about the content in this or any other episode, please tell us. Follow us on Instagram at Modern Bar Cart for recipes and great product tips, or stalk me personally at Quixologist. That's Q-U-I-X-ologist. You can also like us on Facebook by searching Modern Bar Cart or hit us up directly via email by sending a note to podcast at modernbarcart.com. That email address, by the way, is also the one that you should use if you've got any cocktail or home bartending related questions you'd like us to address, or if you think you have a unique perspective on the cocktail world and would like to be interviewed for all to hear. I'll see you next time, but until then, drink responsibly and experiment boldly.